Well, what a delight it is to be able to worship with you this morning here at Mount Pulaski Christian. Gives me an opportunity on behalf of Lincoln Christian University to say thank you to you as one of our partner congregations. Thank you for the privilege of our alumni serving here among you. Thank you for students that you've sent our way. Thank you for prayers you offer on our behalf. Thank you for uh, all of the financial support that you have provided through the years to make our ministry possible. I want you to know we could not do what we do were it not for churches like yours. And so thank you very much for uh, years of faithful partnership. We're, we're really honored to uh, have these LCU kind of days in churches. And I always ask this question, how many of you have either taken a class at Lincoln Christian University or are taking a class or have in the past taken classes at either Lincoln Bible Institute, Lincoln Christian College, Lincoln Christian Seminary, now Lincoln Christian University? Just raise your hand. I'd like to see how many of you have taken classes at our school. Wow, that's wonderful. That's great. There's another way I want to try to illustrate a long-standing partnership. I should have a couple of pictures here. One is a picture of our current campus. Do we have that? That's our 132-acre campus. Uh, shows you the buildings there. Uh, right at the upper uh, part of that is our chapel. The old-timers uh, used to talk about going up to the chapel up on the hill. Yeah, that's our hill in Lincoln, Illinois. We have to come to Mount Pulaski to find hills. So thank you for having hills back here. But they used to talk about going up on the hill. But what was originally up on the hill before the chapel was built is depicted in this picture. It's kind of down here in the lower right now, but that's off of Route 10. That's where the chapel drive would come. That was a farmhouse that sat there. And it's my understanding that uh, Dean Clayton from Mount Pulaski grew up in that farm home. There's been a long connection between Mount Pulaski Christian Church and Lincoln Christian University. It goes way back. That's actually what the black and white campus looked like when I became a student at Lincoln almost 50 years ago. Lynn Laughlin had just started that year as a faculty member. He was really young, and I was even a bit younger back in those days, but that was 50 years ago on the campus of Lincoln Christian University. A lot of history... A lot has happened over the years, and Mount Pulaski Christian Church, you have been a part of it. So thank you for what you've done uh, to make our ministry uh, possible. We're grateful to you. When I was inaugurated as Lincoln's seventh president, I issued a call to our campus, to our churches, uh, to the communities of faith around us, that together we would advance the kingdom of God around the world to all the nations and all the generations. I said it that way because that is my passion. And that is my passion because I am absolutely convinced that was Christ's vision. If you were to ask me to try to state in a, in a very few words what was Christ's dream, what was his desire, what did he die for, what is it that motivated him to leave heaven and come to earth and to be the sacrifice, atoning sacrifice for our sins, he... He taught us a lot about the kingdom. Uh, he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. He, he went about announcing the good news of the kingdom. He taught parables of the kingdom. So here's the way I would say, Christ's vision is to see the reign and rule of God 
come over the heart and life of every man and every woman, every boy and every girl of every nation and every generation. That was his dream. That was his vision to see God's reign and rule come over the heart and life of every man, every woman, every boy, every girl of every nation and every generation. And we tackle that task of advancing his kingdom together. So how do we do that? What's our part in that? Well, I want to give you my sermon in a sentence. I do that because it's my philosophy of preaching that if you can't say it in a sentence, you probably can't say it in 30 minutes. So I try to summarize my sermons into a sentence, and this is it. My sermon in a sentence is simply, it has always been and still is the task of all God's people to serve God's timeless purpose in a timely manner among a temporal generation with eternal consequences. I've been preaching long enough to know that there's probably somebody here this morning who's thinking, well, that's pretty good. Thank you very much. That's enough. We'll just go home now. We've heard your sermon in a sentence. It took me a long time to write that sentence. So it's going to take me a little while to unpack that sentence. Is that okay? I want to unpack what does it mean for us as God's people, all of us as God's people, to serve God's timeless purpose in a timely manner among a temporal generation with eternal consequences. Now, to be honest with you, the idea for this sermon is not my own. I stole it from another preacher. His name's the Apostle Paul. He preached a sermon recorded in Acts chapter 13. He was preaching in Pisidian Antioch, and there in a passing reference on his way to making a point and providing an example, he uses a couple of interesting phrases that I think are really packed with perspective that I want to unpack for us this morning. In his message, Paul rehearses the history of God's people, and in the conclusion to his sermon in Acts chapter 13, he's calling for a response. And as he does, he contrasts Jesus and David. And in Acts 13, 36, he says this, For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. It's a pretty obvious contrast, isn't it? Jesus, who we just sung about, he, he was dead, he was buried, but he was raised to life. So his body didn't see decay. But David, on the other hand, when he died, when he fell asleep, he was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. Now I'm going to come back to the point that Paul makes about Jesus in just a few moments. But on my way there, I want to pause for a moment and have you reflect with me on what does it mean when he says of David, he served God's purpose in his own generation. Actually, the more I've thought about that statement, the more I have thought that would really make an excellent epitaph on a tombstone. It dawned on me some time ago when I was first thinking about this message and I opened up my morning newspaper and there in the obituaries, big bold print, was an obituary for Donald Green. Hmm, got my attention. Obviously another one, but nonetheless 
it awakened me to the thought that someday there will be those who will speak about me in the past tense. What might they say about me? I would be honored if someone said of me, he served God's purpose in his own generation. There's a reason for that. It's because I'm absolutely convinced that that particular statement is a way of framing the task of navigating the sea of change between that which never changes and that which always changes. Navigating transition, navigating turnaround, navigating the challenges of on the one hand standing in the stream of the faithful, but on the other taking a ministry, a church, a university, someplace it's never been before. How do we navigate that? Let's think for just a few moments of the tension between the unchanging and the ever-changing. What does it mean to serve God's purpose? It's actually a word that appears about 18 times in the New Testament, sometimes translated purpose or plan or counsel or will. Let me suggest, here's three of them. The first one is Ephesians chapter 1. Notice what Paul says there in verse 9 where he writes, And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Do you see the the reason why I describe that as a universal purpose, he, he talks about all things in heaven and on earth being brought together under one head, one ruler, one king, Jesus Christ. He talks about a plan of working out everything. There are no exceptions. This is a universal purpose. Notice what Paul says of it in Ephesians chapter 3. There he writes, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to His eternal purpose, which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not only a universal purpose, it's an eternal purpose. It's not about all things, it's about all time. It is universal and eternal. Notice what the Hebrew writer says when he uses this word in Hebrews 6, 17. He writes, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of His purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, He confirmed it with an oath. The point the Hebrew writer is making is that God's purpose is an unchanging purpose. Lots of things are going to change. This purpose will not. God's plan will not. God's will will not change. It is universal, it is eternal, it is unchanging. So let me just underscore it right here. There are a lot of things you can change, but don't mess with the message. It does not change. How we communicate it may change. Methods may change, but the message and the mission of the church does not change. God's purpose is universal, it is eternal, it is unchanging. And so as we serve that redemptive, reconciling, restoring purpose of God, and we take our place in His story, 
with our story, with our experience, we do that within the context of a unique generation. So contrast how we serve God's purpose in our generation. You see, each generation is temporal, it is cultural, it is ever-changing. God's purpose is carried out in each generation in some ways that are the same and in some ways that are different. At Lincoln, we invite our students, our faculty, our staff to live your mission because we understand that it is individually and personally and culturally and geographically and generationally unique. And you can be glad that there are generational differences. We had some of our students up here leading in the worship this morning. You can just be glad that this old guy doesn't wear skinny jeans. <laughs> My pleated pants look a whole lot better on me than skinny jeans would. But that's a generational difference. That's a generational reality. But you see, we live our mission in order to fulfill God's mission, which is eternal, unchanging, universal. He's still carrying out His mission. I am so glad that the early fathers, the founders of Lincoln Christian University got that right. I have to tell you a bit of history. When Earl Hargrove and Charles Mills penned the very first purpose statement for what was Lincoln Bible Institute in 1944, originally it said that we were going to train those who will know the Christ and be able to present the Christ to this generation, to this generation. It wasn't long until it got reworded that we were about sending out workers who would know the Christ and be able to present the Christ to their generation. Do you see the difference? We could have been a one-generational school if we had only been about reaching that present generation in the 1940s, we would have ceased to exist. But from generation to generation to generation, the ministry goes on. And I am so grateful that this year we have a fourth-generation student at Lincoln Christian University. It's obvious that God's concerned about the nations and the generations. Look at Psalm 45, verse 17. There the psalmist writes, I will perpetuate your memory through all generations, and therefore the nations will praise you forever and ever. Do you see the connection? More and more generations will know of God, and as more generations know of God, more nations will praise God. And yet the book of Judges is one of those books that illustrates what can happen when we lose our memory, when we forget. There's an oft-repeated statement in Judges chapter 21, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's just a reminder to me that ours is not the first generation to be faced with the challenge of moral relativism, whereas some would say what's right for me may not be right for you. It's what stems from an absence of absolute truth, a pluralistic perspective that would say that truth is relative. That is, what may be true for you is not necessarily true for me. And if you want to understand how a story can move so quickly from one generation's faithfulness, that of Joshua, to another generation's unfaithfulness, look at the dreadful statement made in Judges 2, verse 10. I shudder when I read it. After that whole generation 
had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. That breaks my heart. They had failed to do what the psalmist urged in Psalm 45 verse 4. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of all your mighty acts. Do you understand what the real genuine generation gap is? The genuine generation gap is not just differences over preferences. It's between a generation that knew the Lord and a generation that didn't know the Lord. That is a tragedy. Now, I'm not into the blame game, but I suppose we could play that game just a little bit. Who would you blame for that younger generation not learning the lessons? You could say, well, they weren't paying attention. They didn't remember what we taught them. They should have listened better. Or perhaps we could put some of the responsibility on the shoulders of the older generation and say for whatever reason they had not faithfully passed on the faith from one generation to the next. They may have gone through the motions, but the message just never sunk in. And why? I'm absolutely convinced that matters of the faith are more caught than taught. We can teach all the right lessons, but if our children and our grandchildren don't catch us in the act of living out our faith, they're probably going to miss it. So fast forward to today. The faith generation gap that's growing in America. We could describe it as the rise of the nuns not the N-U-N-S, women who wear black habits, but the N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. According to the Pew Research Center, and I quote, a third of adults under 30 have no religious affiliation, actually 32% of them, compared with just one in 10 who are 65 and older, 9%. Young adults today are much more likely to be unaffiliated than previous generations were at a similar stage in their lives. Did you catch that? Under 30 in America, 32%. They're asked to check what's your religious affiliation. They're going to check the box, none. My generation, over 65, less than 10%. 9% of us would check the box, none. What has happened within these generations? The researcher David Kinnaman published something in his book, You Lost Me, that was even more staggering. He said, and I quote, More than 60% of young people who went to church as teens drop out after high school. More than 60%. Let me just give you an illustration of that. Let's say this spring, three young people graduate from Mount Pulaski High School or one of the area high schools that grew up in this church. And they all three go off, maybe to college, maybe to the military, maybe to the workforce. Here's the statistic. One of those three will continue to walk faithfully in their faith. One of those three will fall away from their faith for a while and come back. But one of those three will walk away from their faith and never come back. That's scary. So what Kinnaman offers is how to equip young people to live in the world but not of the world. 
with serious long-term consequences. He offers suggestions on how to, young people, how to help young people develop a, a vibrant faith that they're going to embrace rather than toss away. And among the best advice I've ever received from a youth minister about how to really do this as a parent or a grandparent, simply a reminder, rather than pointing a finger in the face of a teenager and telling them what they're doing wrong, put an arm around their shoulder and say, I know this is tough, but we can do this together. God's purpose is to reach all the nations and all the generations including this millennial one. It's now the largest generation in all of history, among the most educated. For them, diversity is normal. More of them crammed right here in the Midwest than at any other time in our history. They are proficient in technologies. They are relentlessly relational. And in the glow of computer monitors, no, no longer computer monitors, in the glow of of an iPhone, they're Googling their questions and looking for answers in all the wrong places, never thinking that the church might have an answer. Our mission field is no longer across the ocean. It's across the street or around the corner. John Castellane, retired professor in our seminary, summed up the challenge facing the American church in a really interesting way. He, he talked about uh, what's typical in an American church that, that would spend literally tens of thousands of dollars to equip a missionary who would learn the language and understand the custom so, customs so he could go across the ocean to preach the gospel to a man that has a, a bone in his nose. But then Dr. Castellin said, but if it's a 15-year-old kid down the street with a gold ring in his nose... That same church would write that kid off as a jerk and be nothing. I guess my question is, who's more lost? Someone across the ocean or someone across the street that doesn't know Jesus? You see, Jesus wants heaven populated with all kinds of people. He wants it populated with gray-haired people. And some of us that are on our way to being no-haired people. Yeah, He does. But He also wants heaven populated with spiked-haired people and purple-haired people because he really doesn't care about the color or condition of our hair. He cares about our hearts. He wants our hearts to know him. So how are you going to do that, church? How are you going to serve God's purpose in your generation? Let me just answer it quickly. By doing what Paul did. Look at how he summed up his life of servant leadership in Acts 20. He said, now I know that none of you among whom I am among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom, will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God, the whole purpose of God. There's that word again, the whole plan of God. In this same passage, Paul says, day and night, I never stop warning you with tears. You understand there's a difference between warning somebody with a gleam in our eye because we think we're right and warning them with a tear in our eye because we're afraid we might be right. That's the way Paul did it. That's why he's doing what he's doing in Acts 13. He's preaching good news. Notice what he says in verse 32. 
We tell you the good news. Now look at how he connects the generations. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. What good news. It's all about Jesus. It's why I'm convinced that the gospel is our constant. The gospel is our anchor. The gospel is what bridges the gulf across the nations and what closes the gap between the generations. It's what every nation and every generation still needs to hear. So Gabe Lyons, in his book, The Next Christians, how a new generation is restoring the faith, gives us this priority. Notice how he says it. The first thing for the Christian is to recover the gospel, to relearn and to fall in love again with that historic, beautiful, redemptive, faithful, demanding, reconciling, all-powerful, restorative, atoning, grace-abounding, soul-quenching, spiritually fulfilling good news of God's love. Wow, that's the gospel. So I am convinced that the mission of Lincoln Christian University is more important today than at any time in our history to equip the next generation with the good news, with the gospel for a desperate, dying world. And I pray that we'll fulfill our vision of being a transformational community of global difference makers. I've said it often to our faculty and staff. I'll say it to you. There's only one reason why Lincoln and schools like Lincoln need more students. It's not to fill our dorms or to balance our budget. It's because the kingdom of God needs more workers in the harvest field. According to the Joshua Project, there are still 6,900 unreached people groups comprised of nearly 3 billion people in our world. Over 339 of those people groups are in China. That's why we have a China Institute. 1,967 of those people groups still don't have a single verse of Scripture translated into their language, which is why we're in partnership with Pioneer Bible Translators to equip people to translate Scripture. The challenge is to work together to see God's reign, God's rule, come over the heart and life of every one of those people groups, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl. So my challenge to this younger generation that's here this morning, I pray that you'll be the ones who will figure out how to use every media available, including social media, to gossip the gospel, to spread good news in the midst of a divided world. But I caution you, don't mess with the message. I pray that you'll find better means and methods than my generation was able to use. But you want to be tempted to mess with the message. I first heard it from one of our seminary graduates down at Harvester Christian Church in a sermon that he preached on uh, how David uh, had received the mantle of leadership from his uh, predecessor Saul and uh, how we oftentimes underestimate the younger generation. It's a good message on understanding 
that this younger generation is not a problem to be solved or something to be fixed, but they are leaders in our midst. So his challenge to the older generation was mentor these young leaders. To the younger generation, Nicomas Perez, our seminary grad, said, you can change our methods, but don't change our message. Don't be tempted to, he said. You're going to be tempted to preach Christ crucified, but not resurrected. You're going to be tempted to offer Jesus as Savior, but not Lord. You're going to be tempted to preach forgiveness without obedience or repentance. I would add to that, you're going to be tempted to preach grace without truth. You're going to be tempted to invite people to follow Jesus but not be faithful to Him. So this morning, how are you going to fulfill this unfulfilled mission and help finish this unfinished task? How to respond to this unprecedented opportunity? Just recognize as I do that we are in partnership with an awe-inspiring May this doxology of praise that Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 3 inspire us to serve God's purpose in our generation. I want to invite you to just say these words of praise to God with me. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.